Welcome to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's Foreign Affairs podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Michael Wahid Hanna, and we're putting together a special coup transition inauguration episode of Order from Ashes. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Good to be with you. So it's been a almost impossible to follow a week with so much happening since uh, January 6th. And uh, we're going to try and put this podcast out before inauguration next Wednesday. And so in in this moment where we're sort of between the seminal uh, coup attempt that happened on January 6th and this very dangerous and risky moment that comes next Wednesday with hopefully the uh, uh, peaceful installation of the president-elect, Tell me what, like, I'm, I'm scared. I'm nervous. I've, I've, I've had worrying, worrying thoughts, uh, nonstop really since the election. Uh, what is, what does all this look like to you? And what are you, what are you, what's most on your mind at this fraught hinge point? Well, I think to start, you call it a coup attempt. And, um, there has been this maddening discussion, uh, for many weeks now trying to minimize what's going on. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the precise term we use is less important than um, how we define what is happening, which is a clear and concerted and consistent attempt uh, since even before the election, but particularly after the election, um, to overturn the results uh, of the election. That, that's what Donald Trump uh, and his cohorts have been trying to do, first through the courts, uh, through uh, fraudulent uh, lawsuits, uh, but even before the election in terms of trying to uh, 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 contract the expansion of, of, uh, of voting rights and, uh, and voting access. Uh, but, you know, the series of fraudulent lawsuits and frivolous lawsuits brought after the election uh, through efforts to try to uh, interfere with the certification of state electors, um, uh, and uh, state counts prior to them getting to Washington. And, and this, this is just the final stage in that effort. Uh, and uh, it, this isn't play acting. Um, Donald Trump is trying to overturn, overturn a Democratic election. That's what he has been trying to do. Uh, it is not a case of him uh, being a sore loser. Uh, this isn't a case of the people around him indulging his uh, whiny efforts at, at being a loser. Donald Trump and his people have been trying to overturn a democratic election. That's, that's the, to me, that's the big takeaway, and it's been obvious for a long time, and I've been frustrated by, for a long time, these these silly discussions about what to call it, and this language is very important. We know we know from from decades of of looking at other fragile democracies, of which we are now one, uh, that how you label and talk about these kinds of uh, uh, these kinds of anti democratic initiatives really helps shape what you what you do about them, if anything, right? So we have, um, I mean, you know, we can get into specifics if you want, but we have all kinds of examples from countries that the U.S. deals with abroad, where uh, if we don't if we don't call a coup a coup, or if we don't call uh, democratic erosion democratic erosion, then we're able to keep on business as usual while these regimes become ever increasingly authoritarian and strip away rights and uh, and you know become impregnable. Uh, what and what we've seen here, I think this is this is really important uh, that we label 
not just the violent uh, mob ransacking the Capitol, uh, but every single GOP person who stands up and says that the vote count was not accurate or that uh, or that there was fraud or that there might have been fraud, that we label every single one of those moves as well uh, a seditious part of a coup attempt. Because if we, if we let that part be okay, but draw the line at uh, you know, at the, at the, at the thugs who came in, maybe interested in, in killing or, or, or detaining or otherwise, uh, uh, stopping the work of our elected officials. If we, if we separate those two things and say one's okay and the other isn't, um, I think we leave ourselves open to, uh, you know, to, to more and more of these coup attempts until permanent long-term minority rule is, is fully installed in this country. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think there is no, um, we should not indulge or accept, even as a kind of uh, rhetorical ploy, uh, this bad faith uh, argumentation about electoral fraud. Um, it, it should be excised from our um, from our political discourse. Uh, now they they will defend themselves on First Amendment grounds, and and that that's hollow. Uh, you know, this isn't this isn't some random person out on a street corner. Um, uh, yelling about electoral fraud. These are uh, elected representatives of our constitutional order, um, and they have uh, a higher obligation um, to serve and defend the Constitution. Uh, and uh, what they are doing is is a kind of a violence to that uh, constitutional order, and and we shouldn't take it lightly. So this leads to another another term that um, that concerns me, which is the the application of terrorism. Uh, to a lot of this seditious uh, insurrection. Now, you know, I'm I'm not new to saying we need to end the war on terror and stop slapping the the label terror on everything that that, that we don't like. Uh, I've been making that argument for the better part of 20 years uh, since the global war on terror began, uh, and I I feel I'm in a little bit of a quandary now because on the one hand, I think it's an awful idea to. Uh, to expand the war on terror to domestic terror, the war on terror as we've been executing it uh, to the domestic terrorists who are part of this seditious insurrection. Uh, on the other hand, I'm wary of coming out uh, really strongly against the abuse of of the terror label and the terror paradigm uh, when it's a bunch of white supremacists who are trying to destroy our democracy. Uh, and And I'm sort of uh, concerned that, you know, like if we're going to, if we're going to finally do the right thing and use existing statutes and not, uh, go wholesale into yet another expansion of a runaway security state, uh, uh, we have to do that in a way that also rolls back that abuse uh, to the black and brown and Muslim people who have been the primary targets of the indiscriminate, uh, elements of the war on terror since nine 11. Yeah, I think I think there. I would I would put this. I would break this down in two ways. First, uh, you know, the use of violence or the threat of violence to affect political ends equals terrorism. Uh, and so, zip tie guy. You know, so definitionally, in terms of what we want to call this, I think it's important in those instances when uh, these actions meet that definition. And I think uh, January six does. Uh, and other attempts at, you know, like what happened in Michigan with the governor and the, the kidnapping plot, you know, obviously these things satisfy that test. And I think for the sake of consistency, 
uh, an impartiality, I do think it's important that we call things what they are. Uh, White supremacist terrorism. Yes. Uh, Now, that being said, um, that doesn't then uh, tip us into blindly following a a silly uh, uh, legalistic expansion um, of the universe of of law enforcement uh, and create our own kind of uh, uh, quixotic national security state within the United States pursuing this uh, in a mirror image of our failures abroad. Um, That doesn't sound like a good idea, uh, and it's not necessary. Uh, There, you know, I think, you know, uh, there are plenty of existing authorities to deal with this without having to uh, legislate a, a new national security uh, infrastructure to deal with it. So, right. I I mean, mean, doesn't it, doesn't it seem like we have all the we have all the tools we need? What what we've been missing until now is the will to enforce them against white supremacists the way we've enforced them against others. I mean, that that's what it looks like to me. Uh, I don't want to see, you know, I, I know there was a lot of uh, of kind of gloating over the, the, the silly videos of some of these fools uh, who've been put on no-fly lists. Um, but I, I watched them, and of course, I did chuckle a little bit. I will it's admit. also not clear, by the way, that those people were on no-fly lists. The, 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 at least one of those I saw was debunked and was, was just someone who had been thrown off a flight for not wearing a mask. Oh, uh, okay. Well, so so there event, might so so we we were prematurely uh, uh, thinking that 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 violent white people were were getting the same treatment as as violent brown people, or, or sorry. Uh, uh, not violent, but but suspects uh, who are who are brown, uh, but, and it but turns out the, maybe they're still they're still getting a pass. Yeah, but I mean, the point to make is that no no fly lists are bad. Uh, I don't want to see the you know like you know the, the consistent application of bad things to other people doesn't is is not a win in my book. No fly lists are bad. They have serious constitutional and due process issues, uh, and. Um, which is you know. which is a point that a lot of BLM activists made during the uh, during the Capitol riot. Uh, they said, um, "We're not asking for the cops to abuse you the way they abuse us. We're asking them that we're asking the cops to treat us the way they treat you." Um, and I think that that's a great point, which is that what what we need to do is expand rights and curtail abuses, not somehow harmonize and universalize uh, the crazy excesses of the war on terror mentality. Yeah, I mean, I think that's well put. So I mean, on this issue of terrorism, I think definitionally there, we're we're on high ground to call it what it is when it satisfies those uh, uh, criteria, uh, w- without then tipping into a new. Uh, an ill-fated crusade. We just, we, it's a big problem. Uh, we see it, we know what it is, and we have to have the political will to deal with it without, uh, you know, creating some uh, new vehicles and structures to do so. We'll be right back. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply, and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the foreign affairs podcast of the Century Foundation. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and I'm speaking with Michael Wahid Hanna, 
about the American coup and its aftermath. Michael, there's been a, a bit of a brouhaha uh, among Middle East hands uh, over comparisons, uh, apt or inapt, between what's happening here and what's happening or what has happened in uh, in the Middle East, North Africa region. Uh, I, I share. I, I hold the view that there are there are useful lessons to be learned, and then there are silly comparisons to make, and and it's okay to do the former if you avoid the latter. What uh, what do you learn from, uh, in particular, having followed the the revolution and and then coup or the uprising and coup in Egypt, uh, and and the, the sort of analytical response uh, to that to that coup. Um, what lessons do you take from that that are helpful to apply to understanding what's happening here now in America? Yeah, I mean, uh, the kind of policing of discourse, I think, is a little silly. I think um, there are times where the kind of derogatory references to terrible places abroad and, you know, like, I'm not in this awful place abroad. I'm here in the United right. States. This isn't Iraq. It's Washington. Yeah. And um, so, you know, like, tone uh, can be grating and that can be a problem. Um, I do think there are uh, comparativist lessons to be learned. I mean, uh, you know, if in, unless you are um, uh, a, a true exceptionalist who thinks that, uh, that, that our uh, politics is simply beyond comparison, um, <laughs> you can look at other instances of, of political instability, uh, of various kinds of uh, authoritarian or undemocratic uh, measures taken with respect to elections, et cetera, um, th that can offer us lessons. Why not? I mean, it, it seems silly that we would want to wall ourselves off from, uh, you know, discussions of self-coups in, in Latin America uh, or, you know, other, um, you know, uh, undemocratic means of, uh, of eroding transitions of power. Um, so, you know, I think, well, why not? One of the big, uh, one of the big, in sort of lessons or insights that I see from having followed Egypt uh, uh, in, in following what's happening in the United States now uh, is the, the group of folks who were not outright violent or authoritarian, but who were open to what they saw at first as a soft and convenient authoritarian bargain uh, and which later slipped into a full-blown uh, dictatorship. Uh, and, and that process I think is very instructive uh, to looking at and raising questions about the ways in which various quarters of the American public, uh, from public opinion all the way up to uh, really reckless people in Congress, uh, uh, think that they can make these kinds of deals with violent thugs, with militias, with anti-democratic and anti-constitutional uh, authoritarian governance. Uh, and they think that somehow they'll be able to control this process. And that, to me, the, the, the lesson of, uh, of, of democratic relapse into authoritarianism is that uh, once, you, once you go down that path, it's very, not only very hard to turn back, but it's very hard to control it. The people who the people who lend their support to it in the end once they sort of have one vote, uh, one time to vote, and the one time that they sort of vote for it, that's it. They they're never consulted again. And and later when they say, hey, you know, we we back this, and now you know we're a little uncomfortable where it's gone. The authoritarian system says we we actually don't even need to care what you think. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the specter of militiaization of politics is a scary one. Um, you know, we are forced to deal with hybrid political actors uh, who have uh, their power within the state and without it because of their militia, their extra legal uh, um, force, uh, their power that sits and resides outside the state. Um, these are real problems. We deal with those actors because they are real and uh, and there and and exert political authority. Uh, but we, when we do so in places like Iraq or Lebanon or, or, or other places where you have these kinds of um, militia actors, uh, it is a necessity, but it is a, uh, it's an awful outcome for the state. Uh, and, um, you know, we're not nearly at that stage, uh, but the ways in which some, uh, uh, some in the GOP have indulged these kinds of armed actors, I think is alarming. Um, and without you know, becoming, without crying wolf on this, I, I think it is something that we have to uh, think a lot about. And it's it's another one of those things that should be policed very vigorously in terms of our attention to links between sitting politicians uh, and armed non-state actors. Um, this has to be a red line uh, for our politics because uh, it's poison otherwise. And it's a red line that, that has been crossed, I, I think, you know, it was eroding since really since Oklahoma City and and Ruby Ridge, but it absolutely has been crossed uh, since the 2016 campaign. And, and for me, one of the concerns is, uh, you, you know, we're I'd say we're we're at the beginning of a process that you know Iraq is at at the far the far end of. So we're I, you know I I don't believe for a second that that we're irreversibly in the clutches of this kind of. Uh, a problem, you know, it can it can be turned back, but but the problem is the same problem, which is, um, you know, as you said, hy- hybrid uh, armed groups uh, in a weakened state, and in, in our case, what's interesting is that the the state has voluntarily weakened itself. This isn't, we're, you know, we're not a failed state. We're not a uh, we're not a uh, a government whose institutions are hanging on by a thread. We have a very robust. Uh, institutional state uh, and political system. So when we have uh, seen the system relinquish space for illegal, anti-constitutional, anti-democratic militias uh, to defy law, which, by the way, has happened under uh, every presidency, at least since since uh, Bill Clinton, there have been these cases of renegade, crazy, white supremacist, states' rights militias uh, who violate the law and in the end are not held accountable uh, because the calculus is it would be uh, too explosive or too dangerous or court some kind of extra violence to hold them to account. And that has emboldened these forces over a quarter century. Uh, and now we're, we're in a position where one of the two major parties in this country has these deniable militias that support its, not just the president's, but a lot of its leadership's goals. And that, to me, is almost an exact parallel to the way Iraqi political parties use the militias that are in the popular mobilization forces to blackmail opponents, wield hard and soft power, and and then always uh, use the cover of deniability. Because when, when push comes to shove, they can say, oh, that's that's not my group. I didn't tell them to do that. And technically it's true, but, but it, it, it's of course in substance, it's a complete, uh, it's a complete fiction. Uh, and that, that 
method is the method that's being deployed here. And I and I fear that if we don't take a real decisive and and perhaps hard to execute stand against against guns, assault rifles, and these militias, uh, that that we're going to be on on a long trend of being ever more at their mercy. Yeah, I mean, two two quick points on this. I think uh, we sometimes uh, have been desensitized to the insanity of of this open carry armed protest, right? Like this is this is nuts in any comparative sense, uh, and uh, it is an an implicit threat. Um, you know, just because people have a right due to some warped understanding of the Second Amendment that has evolved over uh, many decades. Uh, to uh, carry arms, the idea that this is naturally coupled with political protest is frankly insane. So, you know, point one, um, you know, which which I think we sometimes uh, lose sight of. Uh, right, point it's become two, so normalized that that we forgot to be forget to be shocked. Sure, it's nuts. Uh, point two, uh, to the extent that uh, any sitting member, and there are some allegations of this. Um, out there now, uh, any sitting member of Congress, say, uh, helped organize uh, and assist what is frankly seditious activity on January 6th. You know, there's this discussion of whether they uh, helped them uh, tour. Like giving the tours beforehand right. and, and um, pointing I, their way I, I to the speaker's those, office. Yeah, those people should be expelled. Under right? Article 14, yes. Yeah, under the 14th Amendment, yeah. Yeah, um, sorry. Yeah, yeah so... I really, I do, I do, you know, I think there's a whole series of other things that need to happen in regard to censure for those who led this process in Congress, like uh, Senators Cruz and Hawley, et cetera. But on this specific point of people, uh, if proven, and I, you know, this is, this is the allegations according to one Democratic Congresswoman. Um, but if, if those things pan out, I mean, I, I think we have to take those things very, very seriously. Uh, and I think expulsion is, uh, is an appropriate remedy in that case. We'll be right back. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? The lines of critique are clear. Providing realistic policy proposals is a whole other thing and much more difficult. I'm Dan Benaim, and with my colleagues at the Century Foundation, we're trying to ask and answer the hard policy questions and come up with specific proposals that move the ball forward. You can see our ideas and join the conversation yourself at our website, tcf.org. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to the, the Century Foundation's Foreign Affairs podcast, Order from Ashes. I'm talking to Michael Wahid Hanna about the recent coup attempt in the United States and the ongoing uh, crisis in democracy here. Uh, Michael, before the break, uh, you were talking about holding accountable members of Congress. And um, in a minute, I want to ask you about whether American exceptionalism is conclusively uh, dead. Uh, but I just wanted to follow up on, on the last thing you were saying. Um, Based on what we've seen happen in places like Hungary, where a first flirtation with authoritarianism was followed, you know, one election cycle later by a full, robust turn to dictatorial governance, uh, does uh, do you think that if if we end up in the sort of plausible scenario where Biden is inaugurated and 
the members of Congress who abetted all this don't get expelled because that just proves politically uh, uh, too hard to do, uh, that we're just going to face a better organized and more threatening version of this uh, two or four years down the road? Well, I, I think before we get to two, two to four years down the road, I think the thing that we can take from uh, from other uh, from some other countries who have gone through transitions of power uh, is is this concept of vetting. Uh, you know, I think uh, it's not just a problem uh, with respect to sitting members of Congress. Uh, you know, we have this this uh, instance of a Secret Service uh, officer who um, has been, I guess, put on administrative leave or. Uh, reassigned, uh, but uh, who has expressed uh, support for insurrection uh, and the the kind of conspiracy politics of our moment. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, number one, that's pretty dangerous, uh, but we do need to vet pretty vigorously, um, you know, insurrectionists uh, and those who support insurrection can't hold positions in the Secret Service. They shouldn't be holding positions in our uh, law enforcement and and national security institutions. I, th- I think that's something um, that we you know th- that falls beyond the bounds of First Amendment protections, in my view. Uh, you well, can't so what we need what we need is a is a potentially politically explosive uh, purge of our national security state. Uh, I mean, and, purge sounds very widespread. I hope it's not that. <laughs> um, well, I mean, but, get, I mean the the language. Whatever language you want to use for it in practice, what this means, because we've already seen credible reports up and down the line from local police departments up to, as you as you said, the, the Secret Service, we will find uh, a lot of bad apples. And even if, uh, I mean, you know, even if ninety five percent of law enforcement is beyond reproach, uh, that's still going to be tens of thousands of people in our, you know, because we have we have millions of Americans employed in our security apparatuses. It's a huge, it's a huge world of its own. Uh, and rooting those, those violent seditionists out is going to be, if we try to do it, is going to be a large scale exercise. And and I, I believe that's one of the reasons why it hasn't been undertaken before. Uh, even though this problem was, was widely noticed by some members of the law enforcement community, uh, certainly they raised, raised the alarm over it during the eight years that, that President Obama was in power. It's been raised at the state and local level uh, on and off many times in the last 25 years. And it, it hasn't translated into kind of action because one, those, those constituencies are crazy, threatening, and violent. Uh, and two, because the political cost of it in our climate is that it will be portrayed as a partisan purge against people who have, you know, beliefs that are protected under the First Amendment that might make us uncomfortable, that we, but that we somehow have to tolerate. And that's a paradigm that I think we have to change or else we risk, uh, you know, having to worry about an ongoing threat of insurrection from the most heavily armed pe- Americans of all, which is our, our law enforcement community. Well, and, and I took note of, of the, of the, le- the joint letter written by the service chiefs that was put out, uh, I guess it was last week, uh, stating platitudes, right. Things about, you know, uh, serving and protecting our, our constitution, um, that, you know, are, are obvious no brainers, but you know, the, the reason it was put out there as a, as a kind of, you know, warning about what is acceptable behavior for members of the military. Uh, and that the fact that the service chiefs 
thought they had to put that out uh, or needed to, you know, should tell us something about uh, about views within our institutions that, uh, and, and this one being the military, um, that are inimical uh, inimical to uh, to uh, a constitutional order, um, and that should worry us. So, does that does to you does this spell uh, a conclusive end? to the idea of American exceptionalism and 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 uh, a sort of growing acceptance within the American political elite that that we uh, no longer can think of ourselves as somehow different and apart from all other uh, political entities in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, gosh, uh, it's a big open question. Um, I, you know, I, I have complicated ideas around the notion of exceptionalism. I mean, I think. Um, you know, it, it is too often a form of jingoism um, and uh, uh, and a closing off to the rest of the world. You know, I do think there are things that are unique and interesting and special about the American experiment and the American experience. You know, we, you know, uh, you know, I'm I'm an immigrant. I came to the United States age uh, five. Uh, you're the son of uh, uh, of immigrants. Um, you know, I think sometimes we have a slightly different perspective uh, of of the country, and and sometimes that that comes across in positive ways. Um, I do, you know, I, I do think there is something uh, unique about uh, what has transpired in, in the United States over um, um, several hundred years. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, there is a kind of malignant form of that exceptionalism that is. Uh, closed to looking at the rest of the world and uh, using that as some kind of inherent uh, bully platform uh, that we just get to have in terms of uh, of dictating and and uh, uh, giving orders to the rest of the world that is quite silly uh, you know we don't we don't have you know to the extent the United States has played a particular role in the world uh, it is a uh, function both of its hard and soft power when um, none of those things are necessarily uh, a given I mean the way the way I think about this is, uh, you know, I I feel like a lot of Americans have mixed up two different things when they think about American exceptionalism, and the, the thing I still believe is true is that you know, pe- just as people are unique, nations are different and have character, and there is something, as you said, something special about this country, and th- th- you know that's what drew my parents and. Uh, you and your family and so many others uh, to this place, and 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 we and we believe in that promise. That is different from the idea that um, that what happens here is not subject to the same laws of of political physics uh, that apply to every other human society on the planet. And that's the that's the piece of American exceptionalism that has been, I think, supremely unhelpful over the decades where where uh, it gives, frankly, both uh, uh, people on the left and people on the right a false sense of security that we are not at risk. Uh, we're not at risk for a civil war or for uh, an authoritarian relapse or for the wholesale uh, uh, clawback of rights that that um, a growing proportion of Americans had been enjoying over over a improving half century. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, that has allowed us to whistle past the graveyard for a long, long time. Uh, and the sooner we 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 scrap that piece 
of of the idea of American exceptionalism, the the better we're going to be able to protect ourselves. And I see in the in the Joint Chiefs statement, and frankly in some of the 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 welcome uh, alarm and action over the last week, uh, a growing body of uh, of Americans uh, in in government and in public life who uh, are finally willing to say. Oh my God! It can happen here, and we have to we have to stop it from happening here. We can't just invoke the sort of faith that uh, oh, you know, America's different. We're going to be okay. Uh, we have to stop this from happening. Otherwise, uh, we you know we could go back to Jim Crow. We could go back to worse. We could go uh, you know back to a fully undemocratic uh, legislature. And because those dangers are real, and because they are uh, uh, threatened by armed Americans who don't share our values, uh, if we don't, if we don't do something about it, it will be done to us. Well, and, and to bring this back to, um, uh, you know, our, our core expertise, which is foreign policy, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the most tone deaf, uh, expressions of American exceptionalism have been on display during this, um, this kind of lame duck period where you see, the ultimate uh, blowhard exceptionalist, Mike Pompeo, who I will note, I think, is the worst uh, secretary of state in modern American history. Um, but, you know, after his really uh, scandalous uh, 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 briefing where he talked about transition to a second Trump administration, this man has been out there talking uh, and berating and castigating uh, other countries about the need for orderly elections and democratic transitions and you know, it, it has been the, this kind of the quintessence of of hypocrisy vis-a-vis -vis American democ democracy promotion abroad um, and the total lack of self-awareness. Um, that has been Mike Pompeo. Um, and, um, you know, the thing that I uh, take from all that is 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 not what some people have said, which is like, hey, get your ho own house in order and just, you know, forget about the rest of the world. Um of course, we have to get our own house in order. I mean, we we can't, you know, we you know, th this is our home, this is our country, this is where we live. Uh, we care about its well-being, um, and first and foremost, you know, we we you know, our uh, health as a, a democratic entity is not simply uh, a platform for American power abroad. I mean, I think some of the ways in which people talk about this always leap to the to the foreign aspect of this, um, and of course. The most important is living in a healthy uh, and democratic uh, and pluralistic society. Uh, but clearly getting our own house in order um, and giving a frank recognition of our own troubles and the fragility of uh, democracy and our own democracy in particular um, is going to be an important uh, facet of our engagement with the rest of the world. Uh, and our, in our engagement with the rest of the world, as many uh, democratic leaders have talked about over the course of the past years, including Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and uh, the president-elect, uh, is this issue of rising authoritarianism. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it can be sequential in the sense of Joe Biden gets to focus on the United States um, and hopefully gets our house in order. Uh, and when that happens, then we can speak clearly and, uh, and with some moral authority in the world. Um, we don't we don't get the sequence in that sense. You know, rising authoritarianism is a problem. It is bad for for uh, uh, it could be bad for the United States, but it, it, it is bad for a lot of people elsewhere. Um, and I think we have to be 
um, humble in the way we talk about these things. But I think there is a there is a way in which we can recognize uh, very clearly uh, the democratic erosion and backsliding that has happened in the United States, uh, can raise uh, the necessity of combating those forces at home, while also engaging the issue more broadly. Um, you know, this resurgent authoritarianism in the world is a problem, and it is a problem that I want the United States to engage with now. Yeah, and 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 in closing, I I I would agree with everything you just said, and add one more thought, uh, which is that during the presidential campaign, uh, uh, a lot of a lot of the candidates made a real concerted push to change the way we think about and talk about this artificial divide between foreign and domestic policy. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren especially did this well. Uh, but Joe Biden ha- ha- took took up that idea too, and he's carrying it into his uh, planning for his administration. And um, it's a, a potentially positive result of Trump's toxic presidency that he also in in his actions now he did this destructively uh uh tore down that wall that conceptual and practical wall between foreign and domestic policy and i think we are now maybe for the first time since uh the early cold war cognizant of the way all these things are interrelated our our wars abroad with our our policing at home our rule of law in the world uh with our rule of law at home and you know metaphorically it's it, it's always been absurd right i mean to 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 imagine that that you would think that like the way you behave outside the walls of your home has nothing to do with the the way you behave inside the walls of your own home or you know the the micro economy and the macro economy as if they're 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 completely detached um or security and prosperity like these are it's it was bogus that this ever uh was able to be so bifurcated and it will be healthy that we're going to have to talk about things whether it's weapon sales in the gulf or police in, in America shooting uh, uh black people that we cannot uh we cannot talk about these things as if they they exist in uh lonely silos unaffected by all our other policies and and uh uh, we also see that in some of the personnel choices where we have Dennis McDonough running VA or we have Susan Rice uh, with a domestic portfolio. Um, and it's a it's a recognition of the fact that if you're talking about rights, rule of law, democracy promotion, administration of huge bureaucracies, taking care of people's needs, these are not uh, either domestic or, or foreign issues. Uh, so, uh, Michael, it's been great uh, talking to you. Um, uh, and We've got lots to keep processing, so look forward to doing this again soon and uh, wishing for a uh, an uneventful week to come, although I fear it won't be. On that note, Michael, uh, great to have you on the podcast. And till next time, I'm Thanasi Kambanis. And I'm Michael Wahid Hanna. Uh, thanks for listening. been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Till next time.